All right, thank you, team. Good morning. It's great to be worshiping with you all on this beautiful Sunday. It does appear that maybe winter is over at this point, we can hope. With that, now we do come to the end nearly of our what was our winter sermon series here at The Journey. We've been walking through a series called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is the title of a book by pastor and author Eugene Peterson, where he walks through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. We've been walking through them as well. These were the soundtrack, these psalms, of the people of God in the Old Testament as they would be on pilgrimage from where they were to the house of God to worship. They would go on pilgrimages at specific times each year and, and join together as one people. And there's many parallels here for our journey in this life with God nowadays. We've been looking at that. Um, hopefully, if you've been here, you've been taking some things away, growing personally through this series and the, and the study of the psalms. But it's really important to know that this pilgrimage we're talking about, both what was taking place when these were written and our pilgrimage today, is meant to be a corporate thing. Not at all a solitary thing, not an individual lone ranger journey of faith and trying to follow God in this world, but a collective, a corporate thing. So today we're going to talk about community, which is a vital aspect of life with God and being his people, community. We're going to look at Psalm 133, if you want to start to make your way there. It is on page uh, 443 in most of the Pew Bibles. We'll get there. This um, series, the Psalms of Ascent, started out in Psalm 120 with a a solitary person saying to God, "I'm, I'm ready to leave where I've been, leave behind this life and this place that I've known to head out towards you, towards what you have for me. And it builds and builds more and more collectively along the way. And then next week we'll conclude with Psalm 134, which is the whole assembly of the people of God gathered together in God's house to worship him as one. So we're getting close. Now when Psalm 133, we get to that, was the, the crowd was really gathered at that point. There was quite a throng of people assembled. I was trying to picture what that might look like. I've never been on a religious pilgrimage the like of the people of Israel the closest thing I could imagine to, to visualize this, this building up of a crowd was going to a sporting event. So if you can imagine going to opening day at Fenway on Tuesday from Worcester, maybe you start out from just your place, you or perhaps someone you're going with, and you get to Union Station in Worcester, get on the train, and then you realize, oh, you're surrounded by a few more Red Sox fans. You look around, can pick them out, and then with each stop along the way, a few more get onto your train, and the crowd is building, and then you get off, you arrive at Yawkey Station near Fenway Park, and you're swept up into this flow of people that's all headed towards Fenway. They've, they're coming from parking lots, from cars, from buses, and trains, and on foot, and, you're, and this crowd is now really large, and the streets around the stadium, you can hardly move without bumping into people, and then you finally get inside, and you're with the whole throng of people, the 38,000-plus who are there assembled for this one thing. They've come from the towns and cities and states all across New England for this spectacle. Well, it looked kind of like that. These pilgrims set out, each from their own home and village or town, and along the way, along the road, would, would gather steam until finally the whole assembly was there in one place. It's a collective, a corporate thing, this pilgrimage, and it always has that flow uh, towards togetherness from individualization. And that is true for our Christian life as well. 
When God, God grabs hold of our lives, he doesn't just grab hold of our individual lives and leave it there, but he draws us into a flow, into a crowd, an ever-increasing crowd of people along the pilgrimage with us. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, Membership in the church is a basic spiritual fact for those who confess Christ as Lord. It is not an option for those Christians who happen by nature to be more gregarious than others. It is part of the fabric of redemption. For God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. When we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. No Christian is an only child. And that is an understatement. Not only is no Christian an only child, but every Christian is part of a family that boggles the mind in its scope, not only transcending geographic, national, cultural boundaries, but even generational, centuries, millennia. It's all, it's all part of the family that God is drawing together. It's astronomical in its scope. No Christian is, in fact, an only child. This pilgrimage scene in the Old Testament is just a little glimpse of that. People coming from east, south, north, and wherever. Uh, east, west, north, and south to gather together as, as one people. It's, a, it's an image of that. And so let's read that together. It's Psalm 133. As these pilgrims have joined in as one, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For, where the Lord for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This psalm is uh, written a long time ago, but it's every bit as true today as it was then, especially this first part. Verse 1 is kind of the, the thesis statement, the main idea of this psalm. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's a timeless truth. And then there are some analogies to draw it out a little bit. It is like, or it is as if. These things are kind of culturally conditioned. So when you try to think of what's something good, what's something pleasant, perhaps the first thing that comes to your mind is not oil running down some guy's beard and, and dripping off onto his clothes. And, and it's probably not obscure references to Middle Eastern geography. But, so these are culturally conditioned, but they are pretty deep and, and profound. We'll unpack them in a bit. But this opening statement is timeless in its truth. It is good, so good, so pleasant when God's people live together in unity. Now the sad truth is, however, that God's people do not always live together in unity. Unfortunately, that's true. Peterson writes, of course, the fact that we are a family of faith does not mean we are one big happy family. There's a lot of different ways we can live out our identity as part of this family that God has drawn together. Some folks are kind of estranged from the family, perhaps due to a, a falling out, a conflict, a, a hurt, or just being really preoccupied with our own life, our own stuff. Some of us perhaps just pop in occasionally, make an appearance, maybe on the special events, holidays, things like that. We kind of make our appearance and then go on our way, but aren't really engaged. Some of us are perhaps kind of embarrassed by our family in this way. You know, just like don't really want to be associated with them. Perhaps we hear or see things that Christians do or say, and we think, oh gosh, I hope nobody sees us together in public. 
a little embarrassed of our family. We want to create some distance and separation, not fully identify. Some of us are always there when the family gets together, but we drive everyone else crazy with our constant complaining, criticism, judgment, bickering, jockeying for position. Some of us love this ideal, and so we try to put on a front like we've got the perfect happy family. I don't know if any of you grew up in a family like that. Just got to put, on your, put your best foot forward, make it look good and happy when in, inwardly we know that we're really pretty messed up and broken people. There's a lot of different ways we can live out our identity as the family that God has made. A couple of weeks ago, Liz was looking at Psalm 131, and she found something a person had wrote, an anti-Psalm 131 kind of illustrate the opposite of what it looks like to step into the life that God intends for us. I looked to see if he wrote an anti-Psalm 133, and he didn't. But I imagine it wouldn't be too hard for us to craft one. We just start with this statement here, the flip side of how good, how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Just replace the adjectives. How awful and how unpleasant it is when God's people are at each other's throats. When the people of God are divided, when the people of God are refusing to be reconciled with one another, when they squabble and are marked by camps and bickering, when they mirror the segregation and polarization in the society at large and fail to offer anything different. How truly awful that is. How sad it is, tragic, and how painful it can be when we live out the anti-Psalm 133. It is like, or it is as if, let's think of something really disgusting, really nasty, obnoxious to the senses, maybe a horrible smell or something gross to, to look at or to touch. It's like that. Or sadly, for, for some of you, you may not need an analogy. You may just think, well, it's like experiences I've had in church. You can fill in the blank with your own stories of pain and division, conflict that you've been part of. I know that's true for a lot of us. We've experienced the the hurt of anti-Psalm 133, perhaps contributed to it or been a victim or both. And it's really sad. It's really tragic when that's the case. And perhaps that gives you some caution to really enter into community, Christian community, to fully identify with the church and to participate in the church fully with all of you are who you are to bring yourself uh, to be part of the community to receive it and give in community you might be hesitant due to past experiences or or things you've seen or maybe you're attracted to God or Jesus but oh the church I'm just not sure relationships like that don't really feel safe and I can certainly understand why you would be in that place But I will tell you that God does not want you to stay in that place. And he does not want you to be bound and stuck in a place of hesitancy or being on the outside looking in with caution or or trepidation or skepticism. He wants you in. He wants to draw you deeply and fully into his family. And if you've got wounds from church or Christian community in the past, and I've got my own, I will tell you that the the healing you need is found in Christian community. It's found in Christian community, not apart from it, not by separating off from it. That actually will rob your soul. Whatever wounds we have, the healing is still found among the people of God. This final verse here says, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. 
It is among his people, in community, in the church, that God is most profoundly to be found, where his blessing is most profoundly experienced and where life with him is fully lived out and enjoyed. He wants to draw us in. And it is still true, the real Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when God's people do live together in unity. It is truly amazing and beautiful. And he wants that for us. He does. So let's unpack a little bit this unity that we're talking about here in Psalm 133. I want to share a few thoughts of what it means, what it looks like. What is this unity and what is so good about it that the psalm writes about? First, the type of unity in Psalm 133 we need to know is God's achievement. It's God's achievement. There's a lot of ways people come together, join together in different ways around different causes or identity markers, things like that, that fall under some kind of banner of, of unity. There's types of unity that we achieve by, by coming together and organizing. But the unity we're talking about here is God's achievement. It's something that God brings about and makes possible. It's not, it's not something we achieve, that we strive hard, and that if we just work hard enough, we can we can achieve unity. Unity is something that God does that we live out. It's God's achievement. I read from a translation that said how beautiful and, and good it is when God's people live together in unity. If you have the Pew Bible open or another version, you might read it, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I think both of these translations have something to offer and they, they fit well together. I'm glad that it says God's people because we're not just talking about brothers, in a sense. We're not talking about earthly family, for sure, although I'm sure those of you with multiple boys can attest that it is good and pleasant when they get along, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's family, the people of God, and it's not just the brothers. I like the gender-inclusive language of God's people. You know, the, the brothers word in Hebrew translated it's kind of like if you speak Spanish, hermanos can refer to brothers, but it also can refer to siblings at large, brothers and sisters. And that's true with biblical languages. So we're talking about brothers and sisters in God's family. But it's not just the people of God in, in the sense like the people who, who claim to have a relationship with God individually or the people who show up to church as an event or as an institution. Brothers captures the fact that this really is family. This is a, a new identity that people get in Jesus Christ to become brothers and sisters with one another. If God is your father, and if God is my father, then I am your brother. And anyone in here for whom God is your father and theirs, you are family now, brother and sister. And that is just something that God has achieved, and that's true. And we can't really opt in or out of that. We don't attain siblinghood ourselves by our own efforts in life. I mean, if you have siblings, it's not because you made each other siblings. It's because of something your parents did, either by birth or adoption, to form a family, in which case now you are siblings. That's your identity. So it is with God. I want to read together from John chapter 1, and talking about Jesus, it'll be up on the screen. Let's read this together. It says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So that is what happens when, when we are born of God. This is not our own doing, a human decision, a human effort. 
unity in Jesus. It's something that God brings about by adopting us into his household, into his family. And again, if God is your father and God is my father, we are family. And we don't opt in or out of that. And we don't get to decide which siblings we want. Well, I want that brother and that sister, but not necessarily that one or that one. Like, whoever God says is his child, that's your sibling. And that's the fact that he's accomplished. This is a God-achieved thing. So again, unity is God's accomplishment, God's achievement, God's work, and we just live it out, either well or poorly. But he calls us to live it out. Secondly, unity draws people to God. Unity draws people to God. It actually shows God to people. This image here of the precious oil poured on the head and running down the beard and onto the robe, this is an image taken from Exodus chapter 29, and it's, a, it's when Aaron was anointed to be a priest. He was set apart for this role, anointed, the oil was to anoint him for the role of being a priest. And as priest, he kind of facilitated relationship between God and people. He represented the people to God. He represented God to the people, helped them relate. A a little bit earlier in Exodus, God actually says to the whole community of faith that I am making you a kingdom of priests. All of you together, collectively, are going to show me to the world, show the world what I'm like somehow. And this gets picked up big time in the New Testament. It's a very common image that we are a kingdom of priests and the idea that actually every believer in Christ is in some way a priest, someone who represents God to other people and helps represent other people to God and facilitates that relationship because our relationship with God is not meant to happen in solitary confinement. It's not a solo pursuit or an individual effort, but it happens in community. As we help one another to see God, as we help one another to relate to God, as we carry one another's burdens together to God in prayer, and as we show people God through his work in our lives and through looking at his word together and opening up his truth to one another, help, we, we see God far more broadly, far more clearly, far more profoundly together. And in that, we're actually serving as one another's priests. We don't relate to God just by ourselves. We relate to God in community far more profoundly, far more deeply. That is a mantle that's on any believer. You're given to the community to help them walk with God, and they are given to you to help you walk with God. And beyond that, there is some profound way that the unity of God's people shows God to the watching world. Jesus says a couple of things I want to highlight as he was about to go to the cross. He said to his followers, In John 13, first, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I mean, how will people know that God is really among you and Jesus is really with you? It's by your love for one another. Wow. And then later on in John 17, Jesus was praying for his followers, not just then, but all throughout the centuries, the ages. That includes us, his church today. And part of his prayer was this. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Somehow, that is how the world is going to know that Jesus is God, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the real deal by seeing the unity of his people. That's lofty, that's big, it's deep. 
That's kind of what's so insidious about anti-Psalm 133 is sometimes the watching world sees the dysfunction, the discord, and the, the ways that we don't live out this unity, and it, it really is pretty off-putting. And it keeps people from church and from community, the place where God's life and blessing is most profoundly to be found. But on the flip side, God's bringing people together in unity is a powerful display of who he is to a watching world. And that relates to our next point here is that the unity in Psalm 133 is a miraculous joining together. A miraculous, supernatural joining together of that which would not go together. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. I read that at first and thought, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. So Mount Hermon was a very high point at the northernmost part of border of the kingdom of Israel. Mount Zion was another mountain in the southern part of Israel. They were quite far apart and very different geographically. Mount Hermon was a, was a very high elevation, so always covered in snow, known for being really wet. Like the snow was always there, water's always running. It was known for its abundant dew that would show up every morning. Really fertile, really lush place. Zion was known as a pretty arid place for a pretty long stretch of the year where water was, was harder to come by. And so, how does the dew of Hermon fall on Mount Zion? Well, it doesn't. The natural, that, that just doesn't happen. Imagine being in, the, in downtown Worcester in a sweltering hot summer day and then this blast of cold from the top of Mount Washington in New Hampshire just blows through our streets I mean, that doesn't happen, right? How would the dew of Hermon fall on Mount Zion? Well, it would be a supernatural, miraculous act of God to bring these things together, things that do not naturally coexist or occur together in the natural. That is the kind of unity that Jesus brings about in his church, a miraculous, supernatural joining together of things that do not coexist in the natural. Peterson says, If we're going to sing how wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along, we will not do it by being left to ourselves and following our natural bent. If we do that, we will just not come together with some people. We won't do it. Our natural bent is often to divide, to separate, to stick to those who are most like us and most comfortable to be around. It's a supernatural work of God, though, that tears down that which divides people and makes us new, makes us brothers and sisters. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes about a really deep and historic and profound divide between people groups, a long-standing one between Jewish people and, and their Gentile neighbors, a profound hostility that existed between them. And then he writes about what Jesus did. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Again, this is God's doing, God's accomplishment, and a miraculous joining together. Jesus didn't say to Jewish people and to Gentile people, hey, would you just work harder to get along? Could you just treat each other better? Could I sit down with you and perhaps mediate a conversation where you can work out your differences? No, he, he said to Jewish people, I am going to reconcile you to God. He said to Gentile people, I will reconcile you to God through myself, through the cross, and then poof, by doing so, you're brothers and sisters. 
You have a whole newfound identity and community created by God to live out now. A supernatural joining together done by God. He does that. That is the kind of unity he wants to bring about. It's one of the things I love most about our little local expression of the church, our community here, the Journey Community Church. It really is kind of a miraculous joining together of people. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm not preaching, I sit up on the, on the balcony and I, during the worship, I'll, I'll just kind of look out at the crowd. I, I may lose track of what song we're singing. Sorry, Phil. It's a good song. But, but I'll get swept up in a worshipful act of just being in awe of what God has drawn together. People who naturally would never be together, never be in community with one another. It's a beautiful thing. It's not easy, but it is good. A couple of weeks ago at our Thursday evening recovery Bible study that happens here, uh, one of our members was celebrating an anniversary of sobriety, and so another one of the members uh, said a few words to honor that person. And I loved the tribute because it was not mushy. It was not, oh, I just love him so much and we're best friends and best friends forever. He actually said, you know, when I first met this person, I really couldn't stand him. And we struggle to get along. More often than not, we don't see eye to eye. But I'm so grateful for the fellowship that Jesus has created among us. And I have really come to love him. He's really come to love me. And while we still have our differences, we're in this together, and I'm so grateful for it. So this was, it was just so honest, but so right. Because these two guys, they really would not hang out together on their own left to their own natural bent. They wouldn't. But Jesus has brought them together into community, and now all of a sudden, they are each other's priests. They are the ones who help one another along this journey and this pilgrimage to find God, to not only stay sober, but to find full healing and transformation in their lives. That's unity. It's not easy or simple or superficial setting aside of differences or pretending we like everything or understand everything about each other. It's hard. So while it is one of the most beautiful things I love about what God is doing here at The Journey, it will be one of the most challenging things about being part of this community. It's being in community with people who are profoundly different from you. That's part of what it is to be here. To risk misunderstanding, to risk making mistakes, being hurt, hurting others, to step out of our comfort zones, to perhaps realize we don't know everything. It's a lot easier to stick with people who are just like you who don't question things, who don't challenge your assumptions, and, and who, frankly, you, ju you just get in a natural way. But we're not called to people that we just get in a natural way. Jesus brings us together across profound dividing walls. It's a miraculous joining together. Peterson, again, I'll quote him, he says, living together in a way that evokes Psalm 133 is one of the great and arduous tasks before Christ's people. It is easier to do almost anything else. So it's not easy, but man, it is good and beautiful and pleasant when God's people dwell together in unity. And when we do, when we have glimpses of, of being this people that God has miraculously joined together, and when we live that out and step into it, it is a taste of heaven. The unity described in Psalm 133, ultimately it points toward heaven, toward the ultimate coming together that God is going to bring about when he comes again in his fullness, makes all things new. 
C.S. Lewis, a great thinker, he wrote a profound book about hell called The Great Divorce. Not a literal description, but kind of allegorical metaphors for what hell must be like. One of the ways he describes it is people just continually moving further and further away from each other. Like looking around at their neighbors and just getting sick of them and like, oh, it'd be better if I got away and just moving further away and then realizing, oh, there's still some neighbors who are nearby and I'm sick of them and I'm just going to move further away and, and so on and so on until we're completely isolated. And man, hell, hell is profoundly separation, most profoundly from God himself, but from one another. And it is ultimately the work of the devil, the work of the evil one, to separate, to isolate, and to divide. But the flow of what God is doing in redemption in the world and in history is a profound coming together, a joining together. As opposed to moving further and further apart, it is a constant coming closer and closer together. It's the opposite of the great divorce. Until finally we're in this multitude that is the best someone could describe it in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. will be on the screen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's where we're headed. That's where things are headed. That is the flow of what God is doing in history and in the world. And any time we live out our family identity, as we, we step out in being brothers and sisters, where God's people are living together in unity, we are stepping into that flow. Where we live out the anti-Psalm 133, we are ultimately bucking against the tide of what God is doing and will do. But every little step we take to live out this new identity that God gives his children is, is a step into the flow of where he's ultimately taking us. Any little step, any time that you decide to join your solitary life into the practice of a life group, a small group of people such as what we have here who meet together regularly to study God's word, to pray for one another, to share the burdens and the joys of life, You're stepping into the flow of what God is doing in history. If you want to join a life group, we have, we have a, a life group station on your way out in the, the cafe. Someone can help you get connected to one. Anytime you take the risk to just get together with with someone else and, and pray and share what's going on or learn together about God, read the Bible, read a book together or study or just kind of in some way enter into community, into fellowship. You're stepping into the flow of what God is doing. Anytime you take the risk of telling someone in the community what's really going on with you, what God's doing in your life or what you're really struggling with, you are stepping into the flow of God's activity in the world. Anytime you collaborate with people from other churches when our church bands together with others in the city for the well-being of, of Worcester. We're stepping into the flow. Anytime you pray for believers in another part of the world, perhaps people who live in places where it's dangerous and outright, outright deadly to be a Christian, when you pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, you are stepping into the flow of what God is building, what God is bringing out, who he's made you to be. Anytime you choose to reconcile with a brother or sister, to seek forgiveness or to extend forgiveness where there's been hurt and sin, you're stepping into the flow of what God is doing. Anytime you enter into fellowship across generational lines, 
If you hang out with a kid or if you're a young person and you listen to a senior, you're stepping into the flow of what God is doing. Anytime you carry another's burdens or allow someone to carry your burdens and enter into that priestly ministry to one another, anytime you enter into fellowship across cultural, ethnic, or national origin lines and dare to spend your time in our fellowship and cafe downstairs talking to the people that you don't already know or feel comfortable with, you're stepping into the flow of what God is doing all throughout the world and all throughout history. He's been doing it for a long time. He's continuing to do it. And it continues to be true how good, how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. I encourage you to think about a next step, some way that you can step into that flow of what he's doing. Live out what he's already accomplished on our behalf. If there's something that keeps you from doing that, again, perhaps some wounding from a prior experience or some fear, some trepidation, I encourage you to tell somebody about it. Perhaps after the service, just receive prayer from someone in the church. Let them pray for you about that. Break, you, break it off of you. God does not want you to stay isolated or on the outside looking in or with one foot in and one foot out. He wants you fully part of the family, fully participating. One way we're going to do that now is to do what God's people have been doing for a long time together. We're going to celebrate communion together as a church. If the worship team and servers could start to make their way forward. Now, Jesus instructed his followers to, to take bread and wine as a way of remembering him. Now, sadly, this has been yet another arena in which Christians have divided very profoundly, had huge fights over how to practice this and what are the theological implications of the elements and stuff like that. But nevertheless, every church throughout time and the centuries, whatever language they speak, whatever small village or large city they live in, they've, they've practiced this as a way of celebrating what Jesus has done to bring about the unity of his people, what he has done to make us his children, to make God our Father, and in turn, make us siblings. Before he went to the cross, he, he took bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. And he took a cup said, take and drink this. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this to remember me. So we do this together as a community. Uh, any one of us who calls God our Father, who believes that what Jesus has done makes us right with God, is welcome to come. And before the service yesterday, I, I had a chance to talk with a young boy, a very sincere, beautiful heart, who was worried, he'd been reading in his Bible uh, in 1 Corinthians about, you know, don't take communion in an unworthy manner or you risk God's judgment. He, and he was really worried, like, oh, am, am, should I be taking communion? Am I, am I worthy? Am I, or am I, I, what a beautiful question from a young boy. Um, that, the context of that passage is people who were taking communion and yet even in the act of doing it were reinforcing divisions among each other excluding people, doing it in cliques, things like that. That is actually kind of an unworthy manner of, of taking communion. And, and one caution, I would say, is if you are in a, a conflict or, or you know there's a bitterness or a grudge that you're not doing anything, deliberate, you're deliberately refusing to reconcile in any way, that would be a good week to refrain from taking communion. But otherwise, it is not about being good enough. 
Communion is a celebration that a bunch of us who are not good enough to be God's children are made worthy and counted as his children because of what Jesus has done for us. So we come together in celebration, thanking him and praising him for laying down his life, his body and blood, to bring us into family together. And so I invite you to participate. You can come forward as the worship team begins to play again. Uh, one of your fellow priests will distribute some bread that is edible for, for anyone with allergies and some juice and declare the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let me pray as we enter in.